You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. So today's scripture is Acts 2, uh, verses 36 through 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for this morning and for um, just the community that we have here. Um, Thank you for everyone that made it here today, and I pray that you would just focus our minds and our hearts on you, Lord, and your word and the message that you are bringing to us today. Pray that you would just um, give each one of us understanding as you see fit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Shannon. Um, I'm actually kind of, I'm disappointed that um, Carlton couldn't give his testimony today. I was really, he's been really excited to do it. And uh, I I saw him yesterday and um, he's kind of whittled down to about 160 pounds. Um, If you knew him before, he was 210 at that time. And he shares this with everybody, so. Um, but he's, he's really, but I mean, so his body is, is sort of wasting away, but his inner person is being renewed day by day. And, uh, and he really wanted you to know that. And he wanted to be here present so you could see how weak he was. Some of us would be maybe embarrassed about that, but he wants you to see how weak he is so you could understand the strength of God. Um, and so I, I, man, maybe he'll, hope I didn't ruin his, <laughs> what he wanted to share, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to when he's able to share with us. But I, I actually, uh, I, I wanted to make reference to that, that testimony that um, I'm disappointed that he wouldn't be able to give today because I actually feel like that, would, that, that is very pertinent to what we're going to be talking about um, today. And I, I think you'll see how in, in a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I did this past week do something that I don't normally do. And that is that I Googled, searched the phrase, tools for church growth. 
Now, the, the reason why, <laughs> and those of you who know me are laughing because you know, like, I'm not a huge fan of, like, the church growth movement in general. <laughs> That's to put it mildly, right? Um, but for the purposes of the sermon, I, I wanted to see, like, this was a movement that had, like, a lot of traction maybe a couple of decades ago, and, and they're still around, but not so much anymore. But I just wanted to see what they were saying recently. So I, when you Google uh, tools for church growth, um, these are some of the things that come up if we, if we go to the next uh, slide. One of the very first, or actually the first article that pops up uh, gives you a list of, of recommendations of what you ought to do in order to help grow, um, quote, your church, <laughs> all right? Uh, and, and you can see as you look down, we won't go through all of these or anything, but you can see kind of from the list, there's a lot of um, ideas about uh, media, right, like Create strong social media presence. Um, you look down a little. Actually, that um, repurpose content is an interesting one. Like if you dive into the article a little bit, what they mean by that is you take the Sunday service and, and you videotape all of it, and then you kind of cut it up into little pieces, and then so you can use these sound bites in, in different, different places. And it even suggested to use a bloopers reel, make a bloopers reel, um, which is... Doesn't that make you think, like, you wouldn't have a bloopers reel unless you thought of church as a performance, right? Like, okay, so you have, you're supposed to have this bloopers reel. Um, you, you make a mobile app. There's things like that. Um, develop a marketing strategy. I think the one that was kind of like the hardest for me to sort of wrap my mind around was design an apparel line. <laughs> Yeah, like, what would ours even look like? You know? It's scary. <laughs> it's got like a broken needle and a pipe. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Wait, with the cross. But I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so you, but you can kind of get the get the sense of like where they're coming from. They they understand church is a business that offers services to customers, right? And so these tools, notice they call it tools, are used to sort of um, maximize and maybe manipulate outcomes. That, that's the basic understanding. Now, the reason why I, I wanted to check in with the, um, the church growth movement at this point as a result of reading this passage was because I wondered how they would, like, understand this kind of a passage because... On one level, you could see how they could be pretty excited about a passage like this, right? The church goes from 120 approximately people to over 3,000 people in one day. One day, you know? And so you can imagine how they would be excited about that. Now, to put that into context uh, for us, and, and we've talked about this before, but so that would mean approximately like you came to Enclave next week and there was 1,500 a, a people here or over 1,500 people. Like, we wouldn't even fit into the room, right? Now, but notice, if you think about Pentecost, did they use uh, any of the tools that were up there? <laughs> no, they didn't use, well, and you might make the argument, okay, well, they didn't have those tools, like, available to them. But I think, I think it's more than that. I, I think that um, even if those tools were available, they wouldn't have the categories to employ these kinds of tools because they don't think of church as a business, right? So uh, now, 
Now, when, if you think about those tools, like, are those things wrong in and of themselves? Like, is a mobile app wrong? No. Uh, our, you know, social media presence, is that wrong? Like, you, we should be against, I, I don't think so. I, I can even imagine, uh, and things like this have happened, you know, it's like somebody comes in and they have a certain set of skills and passions and things like this. And so let's say somebody has a hobby in making t-shirts. They love to make t-shirts. They come, you know, they're part of our community, you know, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They love being a part of us, and they're so excited. They're like, man, I'm going to make you guys, like, let's make some t-shirts, you know, like when you said with the pipe and the, and like, and, he, and, and am I going to, I'm not going to go like, no, we're against t-shirts. No, but, but, but what I, I think you know what I'm trying to say. Pentecost w was not the result of like this well-thought-out marketing strategy where, where they like leveraged things to try to control the outcomes. It was something very, very different. Right? It was a supernatural work of God. And, and that, I think the distinction is important because if Pentecost, what we saw at Pentecost came as a result of a well-thought-out marketing strategy where they were trying to manipulate the outcomes, then that might be precedent for us to maybe think about things in that kind of way. But if it is the result of God doing something miraculous in and through his people as they actively depend on him, then maybe that's where we should be focusing our energy, right? Because we have a... We ourselves have, you know, we have to choose where we spend our time and our energy, right? Are we going to spend it on, like, all that stuff takes time, right? And, but what the church did at Pentecost is actively depend on God, and, and then God did this, did this miracle. So just, let's kind of tuck that away, and we'll, we'll come back to that in, in, a, in a little bit. So we've been thinking about the, the day of Pentecost, and actually we have been in the day of Pentecost for I think maybe two months now, right? It's like one day, Andrew, come on, we got to move on. But I, 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 there's a lot there, right? Um, we look at the event of Pentecost, about 120 disciples of Jesus, we said, were all located in this one house in Jerusalem. The sound of a rushing mighty wind came into that house, divided tongues of fire, landed on their heads so that they began to speak in languages that they did not previously know regarding the mighty works of God in Jesus. So that's kind of the event that we normally associate with Pentecost. But then we've also said that there were two reactions to this event by the pilgrims that were passing by. You know, the, the population in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost explodes with all these pilgrims that are coming into the city, right? They pass by, they hear, and they see these strange things going on, and they have basically two reactions. Some of them are confused, but they're curious, and so they ask, what does this mean in Acts chapter 2, verse 12? And some of them bring this accusation of, like, okay, these guys are drunk, right, in, in verse 13, so we saw those two reactions, and then we've also been kind of walking through Peter's response to those reactions. And if you were to um, kind of summarize his response to their reactions, it would be to say, look, this is not what you're seeing, what you're hearing is not the consequence of drunkenness, but the consequence of Jesus as he has now been uh, resurrected elevated to the highest place of authority in all the universe at the right hand of God the Father. Now he is using his authority, he is using his power to empower others, 
as he pours out his spirit so that they prophesy regarding the mighty works of God in Jesus. Now, to give you just a flavor of some of uh, the, the Peter's response to remind us of that, I just want to quote again two verses from that passage. So verse 33, <clears throat> Peter says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he that is Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What you're seeing and hearing is Jesus poured out his spirit. That's what he's saying. Now, if you skip down to verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? And that's kind of like where the, like kind of like the word for word, uh, you know, uh, record of the response ends for, for us. So we, we talked about the event of Pentecost, these reactions to Pentecost, Peter's response to those reactions, but now I want to talk about the subsequent exchange between Peter and these 3,000 people that respond positively to Peter's message. And, and so we're going to focus our attention on these 3,000. And, and when we do, and we look at this passage, we can say two things about them. One is that they are convicted about Peter's message. So we'll, we'll talk about that. They're convicted about Peter's message. But the second thing is that they are receptive to Peter's invitation. So we're going to talk about a little bit the nature of the invitation and then what their reception looks like. And then at the end, we're going to ask the question from a certain angle, okay, like what, like what if this were to happen today? What, what, would, what would the church growth movement do with it? Like, just kind of imagine how that would all kind of go down. We'll do that at, at the end. So let's first think about how the 3,000 were convicted by the message of, of uh, Peter. Beginning again in verse 37. There it says, Now when they, talking about these Jewish pilgrims, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, when it says, when they heard this, what is the this? It's Peter's message as a whole, but probably most particularly, this accusation that, look, you guys killed the Christ. Right? And perhaps even, um, it's, you could make the argument <clears throat> that this crowd perhaps was even there Right? If, if they have made a pilgrimage to be there on Pentecost, what's the likelihood of them have making the pilgrimage to be there at Passover? And so perhaps there are even some there that were at the, in the crowd that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So now, now think about how this relates to the article that I mentioned at the beginning uh, regarding the, the, the church growth movement, right? the article that they, they produced. Nowhere in that article did I see anything like this, right? And can you imagine if it was there? Step number one, accuse your audience of killing Jesus, right? But nevertheless, this is what Peter does because that's the reality of the situation. And that's actually the reality of our situation, right? Our sins put Jesus on the cross, right? And so 3,000 People, it says that they were, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, meaning that they felt the weight 
of their guilt with regard to this. So they, they hear the message. Peter is saying, look, you're responsible for Jesus's death, the, the death of the Christ, right? And then they feel the weight of that guilt. But notice that they don't stay there, right? Then they respond to this conviction with this question that they ask of the apostles, where they say, brothers, what shall we do? Now, I was really struck this past week about just the, the profoundness of this little question, because it actually, I feel like it tells you quite a bit about what's going on in their hearts and minds, because it, it requires, think about this. There's all kinds of ways in which they could try to defend themselves in the face of this accusation, right? They could say, like, well, we didn't actually nail him to the cross. Or, Man, you know what? We didn't know what was going on. We were kind of going along with the crowd. You could, you could make tons of excuses. Maybe some of them were not even there. Like, we weren't even there, you know? But he's, he said, no, you guys killed the Christ. And, and what do they do? It's like, oh, brothers, what shall... So doesn't that show, like, a, a, a level of humility, right? They're saying, like, you're right. We're guilty, we got Jesus wrong, and, and we're responsible for his crucifixion, and, and we don't know what to do. And notice in that, that also means that they are putting themselves under the leadership of the apostles. We're guilty. We don't know what to do. You guys seem to know what to do. Can you tell us what to do? So this question, I think, shows humility but it also shows that they, they have an understanding that this is going to mean that, that their lives are going to be different. Like this is going to require life change, right? They, they did certain things before they were convicted by this statement, and now they're going to do something different. They, they don't know what that is, but they realize, man, this is going to require my life to change, and this is good for us to hear because sometimes I feel like I, I myself, and I know I'm sure others of you can agree with this, is sometimes you can confuse conviction with transformation, right? You, you, hear a, you read an article, you hear a podcast, you watch something, you hear a message, and you say, man, that was so convicting, right? That, yep, that's me. I, I'm guilty of that. But that's not the same thing as growing, right? And, and I think this group seems to understand this. That they, they, they hear Peter's message, and, and they feel the weight of that guilt, and, and they know that it must lead to a changed life, right? And so, so Peter, in response to this, is going to give an invitation. So the first thing that we can say about these 3,000 people is that they were convicted by Peter's message. But the second thing I want to talk about with regard to these 3,000 was that they were receptive of Peter's invitation. So look back with me on verse 38. It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So before they had given a Wrong response with regard to the lordship of Jesus, right? Now, they're being invited to have a 
right response to the lordship of Jesus. So they are to respond to Jesus and then also receive things from King Jesus. So how are they being invited to respond? Right, so Peter says, repent and be baptized. Right? And so I want to unpack that just a little bit because we sort of throw those ideas around sometimes. In terms of repentance, when we talk about to repent, right, at the very fundamental kind of level, it means to change your mind. And you can see it being used that way, maybe with a little, like if you add a little color of regret, then you'll kind of get the idea if you see how this word is used outside of the New Testament. But inside the New Testament and against the backdrop of the Old Testament, in the context of like a gospel invitation, so like responding to the person and work of Jesus, it's more than just changing your mind. It's more than saying like, I now mentally assent to these new set of facts or something like that. It's a change of your allegiances so that you were um, giving your allegiance to sin, giving your allegiance to yourself, giving your allegiance to idols, and you turn from that to giving your allegiance to God and Jesus Christ. So there's this sort of like movement that, that happens. That's why in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, it talks about repentance toward God. There's this turning aspect to it. And throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, it talks about, it says like, hey, look, you're chasing these idols. These idols aren't worth it. They can't do anything for you. You're seeking your comfort, security, and safety in them. They're not going to be able to give you what you want. They're not good Lord and saviors. They will always leave you down. Return to Yahweh. Go to Yahweh. You turn to these things, right? Jeremiah 2.13 says, they're broken cisterns. You're a thirsty soul. They cannot provide what you need. Turn back to Yahweh. He's the fountain of living water. And receive from him. So there's this movement of, of turning, right? Now that, it, it helps us to understand how the New Testament also uses the word believe. Right? Because in the New Testament... Believe and repent are sort of two sides of the same coin, right? They're emphasizing two different parts of the turning. The repenting is, is emphasizing the turning away, and the believing is emphasizing the turning away too. But it's all kind of like one idea. So in other words, it's not that you like, okay, I'm going to repent on Friday, and then on Monday I'm going to believe, but that's not how that works. It, it kind of all goes together. And so that's why in the New Testament, sometimes when there is a gospel invitation to like respond to the person and work of Jesus, the only word that is used with reference to those two words is repent. Like in our case, like he says, repent, right? And sometimes the only word that is used is believe. Like throughout the gospel of John, it's believe. Do you think that, the, that John forgot about repentance? No, right? He just understands repentance as being part of this turning toward God. Sometimes both of words are used. Like when uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. So there's this idea of turning, that they are being invited to. Uh, change your allegiances. Your allegiances were over here. Now switch that allegiance to God in Jesus 
Christ. Give yourself to him. Now, there's sort of another flip side to this that, that uh, uh, Peter's going to mention. Now it's not one side of the coin believing, the other side of the coin repent. Now it's repent and be baptized. And that's, that's flipping the coin in a, in, a, uh, in a different kind of way, not around the idea of turning, but the idea of around what's going on inside, what's going on outside, right? Inside, you're repenting. In your heart, you're changing your allegiances from what you're chasing after to Jesus. But then he says, uh, be baptized, because that's expressing that change of allegiance outwardly, right? And it's often in connection with repentance. We're going to see it again in Acts chapter 13 and in Acts chapter 19. And what it means is that you are publicly identifying with the person and work of Jesus, both his death and his resurrection. So when we have baptisms here, right, when you go under the water, that represents like, yeah, that's when my old self died with Jesus, dead now, right? You raise up, and then, that, that oh, that's my new life in Jesus. Now I walk in the newness of life with Jesus. That's all being represented in baptism. You're identifying with Jesus and the water. There's all this imagery about that being the cleansing aspect of it. There's all this imagery going on. But what Peter is saying is, look, first, when it came to Jesus' claim to be Lord, you said, no, you're not. You're a blasphemer, and you're an insurrectionist. You're worthy of crucifixion. But now, it's like, like it would be perfectly just for God to come down and be like, that was wrong, squash, right? But now, Peter's coming and saying, look, you got it wrong. Right? Now is your invitation to respond rightly to King Jesus. Repent and be baptized as a way of identifying yourself with this king at great risk to yourself, by the way. Because think about when this event happens. 50 days after Jesus was crucified. So he's saying, look, all of you, right? You guys were there 50 days ago, less than two months ago, Jesus was crucified. Now I want you to Respond differently to him and identify with him in baptism. Because, and there's a risk to identifying with Jesus, right? Because that means that you're, you're submitting yourself to someone who is calling you to a life that is not always popular. It, it, it's sometimes will get you into trouble, might get you persecuted, it might get you killed. Right? And Peter knows that. And yet he's offering this invitation. And so that must mean that Peter thinks it's worth it. It's worth publicly identifying with Jesus in, in this kind of way. So Peter, he's, he's calling them to respond. He's inviting them to respond in repentance and in baptism. But he's also inviting them to receive from King Jesus. So <clears throat> Jesus... As a result of his ascension, resurrection ascension, he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, the highest place of authority in the universe, and from that place of authority, he now offers us two gifts as the God-man king. Right? 
during his earthly ministry, he would pardon people's sins, right? And that was in anticipation of what he was what was going to happen. But now he is pardoning people's sins as a consequence of what has already happened. So these two gifts that he offers are the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, we know this, he paid the debt of our sins by dying in our place on the cross. And the resurrection and the ascension is sort of like God's stamp of approval on that sacrifice. Yes, that sacrifice accomplished what it set out to do, right? And so now Jesus has the authority as the God-man who sits on the throne of God to pardon the sins of his subjects if they will come to him. So that's, that's one gift that he's offering. The other offer is the, that they go together always is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we say the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is written in such a way that we understand that the gift is the Holy Spirit. And this is an echo of Ezekiel 36. And think about the relevance to the pilgrims that are there with regard to this. In Ezekiel 36, God says, look, there's going to come a day where I gather to myself those who are dispersed throughout the world. My, my people who are dispersed throughout the world, right? Think about the pilgrims who have come into Jerusalem. I will gather them to myself. I will wash them with water. I will put my Holy Spirit in them, and then they will walk in accordance with my commands. Right, so King Jesus comes with these gifts, and they work together, don't they? One takes away the barrier to obedience, your sin. But that's not enough. Then he gives you the power for obedience by giving you the Holy Spirit. All right, so he's saying, man, change your mind about me. Change your allegiances. Come to me, and then I as the king, I will pardon your sins. But even more than that, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can follow me. Now, we can, we can see that they, how they respond to Peter's invitation in verse 41. There it says, so those who received his word, right, Peter's word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So that day, 3,000 people chose to publicly identify with Jesus in baptism. Probably, and I don't know this, but, but probably in one of the big pools that were present in Jerusalem at the time, maybe sometimes used for ritual cleansing to be able to participate in the temple, right? And so can you imagine what this would look like? 3,000 people baptized. You know, sometimes it starts to be like, okay, we got five baptisms today. This is going to run a little long. But what if there, you know, it's like 3,000. How long does that even take, like logistically, you know? Do you just like, hey, once you're baptized, you're baptizing somebody else? It's like, how, how do you, you know, did they have a meeting before? I don't know. But I mean, 3,000 people are watching. It's like those people are identifying with Jesus. They said that we got the crucifixion wrong. That, that's something. That's something. Now, now, here's where I want to talk again about, okay, what, 
would happen if that kind of thing happened today. So imagine, like, one of the local churches in, in, the, in the area. It went from, okay, last week there was 120 people there. This week there are 3,000 people there. <laughs> you know, what in the world is going on? And I think we have probably an idea of what might happen because sometimes this kind of thing happens. Not, maybe not that drastic of a number change, but sometimes local churches just explode, right? But what normally happens in that type of a situation, at least in the United States, like the, the, the church growth movement, wait, what happened? And then what do they do? They send people to interview the leaders because they want to know the secret. Tell us what the secret is to your success, right? <clears throat> That way, we can, you know, put together uh, a video series, sell that at Lifeway. We can make a book deal. We can, do, we can leverage these things. And maybe we can have what happened over here, we can make that happen over here and over here and over here for Jesus. Won't that be great? Right? <clears throat> but can you imagine these church growth movement gurus coming to Peter and asking him these interview kind of questions? Like, hey, Peter, come on, just, what's the, what's the secret here? Well, we were praying, yeah, I know, we, we all, we know we pray. Like, what, what did you do? What, what's the thing that you do? You know, and he would say, well, I don't, I mean, Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. So we did. And then we got into a house and we, and we prayed. And then we didn't, I mean, God, Jesus said he was going to do this, but we didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. And then the spirit came and then we started speaking in languages that we didn't know before. And so we're like, whoa, you know, and then these guys were passing by, lots of them were passing by, and they started asking questions, making accusations, and so naturally I accused them of killing Jesus and called them to repentance, and, and, and God did this miracle, and then 3,000 people identified with Jesus. And it, so you're saying the secret is that God performed a miracle? And Peter's like, yeah, that's it. God performs miracles when he decides to. When he decides to. You know, like, you can't make a video series off of this, you know? And so, now when I say, like, the secret is that God performed a miracle, that doesn't mean that Peter didn't do anything. He obviously did things, right? Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness regarding the mighty works of God. This is part of the reason why I'm disappointed that, that, that Carlton wasn't here today. That was what he was going to He was going to bear witness regarding the mighty works of God in the midst of his weakness. And continue to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Peter is, it says continued. You know, he is pleading with them. Because he cares about them. Not numbers about 
them. Right? So gimmicks can get you numbers. Right? There are there are things you could do, and, and 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 you know, it seems to work. But what gimmicks can't do is take the testimony of someone who is weak. Regarding the power of God and his gospel. Only that, when the Spirit takes that and applies it to the heart of someone, will there be true conviction, repentance, and then a changed life. Now, my question is, which, what do you think is more compelling? Our testimony in the midst of feeling so weak. It's, it's been a hard week for me. And I feel, I, I just, I don't even know what to do. Like, I'm asking the same question. What, what do I even do? Your testimony in the midst of weakness, is that more compelling? Or is a mobile app more compelling? Or an apparel line? Which, <laughs> I mean, we're laughing because the answer is so obvious, right? And so I just, I, I want to invite us to ask God again for three things. That he would fill us with his spirit. That, that we would be bold witnesses, even in the face of opposition. That, that, that God would give us his heart for people. Not numbers or slashes on your belt. For, that, that we would actually love people. That we, let our, we would be like, oh man, please, you know, you've got to know my Jesus. Not, not because, because we just love them. And I want to ask God that he would, and this is, I feel like I'm struggling with this, that, that he would give us confidence about the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. Because that's what he said. It's the power of God unto salvation is what, what Paul says. Do you, I mean, do we believe that anymore? It's hard. Because I find myself assessing people, whether or not, well, I, I don't know. I just, this doesn't seem like the kind of person that's going to respond to the gospel. It's like, are you, what are you doing? Like the gospel, when combined with the spirit, applying it to a, a heart, transforms lives. That's how my life was transformed. So why do we think that like now it's, well, it's different now. The culture shifted and blah, blah, blah. No, no. God, do it again. Fill us, God. Give us your heart. Use us, Lord. Help us to believe in the power of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, you are God and, and we're not. And we know that you can do powerful things. But Lord, we, we don't dictate to you when, you when you will do them or how you will do them. But Father, we do. We ask again, Lord, would you Please bring revival to Turlock.
to our area? Would you pour out your spirit? Lord, we, we, are, we are broken, weak people. Uh, we believe in your promises some of the time. But Lord, would you, would you use us anyway? Like you've done so for so many years. We, we want to see people changed by your spirit as they receive the good news about our king resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. We pray these things in his name. Amen.